the Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN and a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. This is a rapid reaction episode. An important trial was published and you want to know about it, but maybe haven't had time to dive in just yet. So go ahead and start right here because today's article is the Mercy Trial published in print in July 2023 in JAMA. You might have seen it in June when it was published ahead of print. Um, Now, this is not an open access article, uh, but I think most institutions do have access to JAMA, which is a good thing there. But uh, I'm joined by two infectious diseases pharmacists today, um, as Aaron McCreary and Jason Pogue are the very special guests for today's rapid reaction episode discussing the continuous infusion versus intermittent administration of miropenem in critically ill patients, aka the Mercy Trial. Now, I invited these two on for a deep dive into a trial that I am scared is going to be misinterpreted and change the perception about the benefits of extended or continuous infusion beta-lactams, especially in the critically ill. If you just read the headlines, right, you think there's no difference. So please listen. That will not be your opinion at the end of this. Now, uh, go ahead, sit back, listen to two subject matter experts and uh, great friends discuss everything from landmark articles to trial design to the effect of TDM, biggest takeaways, the upcoming Blink 3 trial, and much, much more. P.S. I hope all the listeners are ready for a new episode series coming very soon. But for now, based on how much fun I had interviewing and recording these two, you all are in for an absolute great time starting right now. Now You've heard their names as authors with practice-changing research and review articles in multiple literature review series episodes. Uh, They are co-hosts in the awesome ID podcast Breakpoints, in addition to multiple other projects. Uh, Very, very lucky to be joined by Jason Pogue and Aaron McCreary. Now, Jason Pogue is a clinical professor of pharmacy at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy. You can find him on Twitter at jpogue1. And Aaron McCreary is the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC and is also Jason's friend. And you can find her on Twitter at Aaron McCreary. Uh, Aaron and Jason, how are you both doing today? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks Thanks for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Anytime I get to, to sit with a bunch of Pittsburghers, uh, it makes me happy. And that's where we are today. So it's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been using my favorite title of Jason's friend and I may or may not still be on Twitter. I actually don't I, even that's know. That's true. I think that's yeah. a really good point. And I don't even know that Twitter, it's called, thanks. It's not even called Twitter anymore. It's, I guess you can Twitter, find them on yeah. X. Yeah. <laughs> I will use that little bird forever. I miss him. Is it a him? I think he's gender neutral. Definitely gender neutral. I just said he's gender neutral. I'm the worst. I shouldn't yeah. be allowed to host. So... The Mercy Trial, we're going to get into it. I'm sure it brought up some strong emotions. I bet we're going to get into them, into your feelings in a sec. But, you know, admittedly, you both are big Pittsburgh sports fans. So share with the listeners, what's your favorite Pittsburgh sports memory? And I got to let Jason take the lead exclusively based on his his Twitter, his X, whatever picture where it's literally showcasing his love for Pittsburgh sports. Yeah, so this is a tough question. I think this might be the hardest thing I have to answer uh, the, the whole day because to limit this to one, so I'm going to cheat um, and I'm going to give you two. 
Um, <laughs> Classic Jason move. <laughs> two, two experience and two very enjoyable experiences. I, I think that. So the, the, almost like the default answer for me is, as a, again, I grew up uh, particularly a diehard Penguins fan. So like the default answer for me wants to be one in 2016. I was in San, San Jose when we won game six and won the cup. And so that was a really special experience. We got to like, again, there weren't a ton of Penguins fans there. So after the game, we went up against the boards. The players came over, brought the cup, like super special. But with that being said, I, I still think I have to give the best memory experience to the 2009 AFC Championship game um, at Heinz Field. Uh, it was Heinz Field then. Um, at Heinz Field, playing the Ravens, again, if you can't get any better than that, and uh, up by just, I, I believe they were up three at the time, fourth quarter, Troy Palomalo with a pick six. Um, and I thought that literally that it was going to fall over, that, that the whole stadium was going to fall over. It was shaking so much. But that was that was just a very, again, when you think Pittsburgh, you think the Steelers, right? So that's the experience that has to drive it for me. Boy, I bet Renegade during that game was absolutely insanity. Truth. Those are good. Those are hard to follow. Um, I'm doing two, too, since Jason did two. Uh, so first I, a lot of, I think people, some people know this that may listen to me talk about my life story, but I, um, ended up at UPMC by kind of fortuitously meeting Ryan Shields, uh, at ECMID in 2018, which Jason Pogue helped facilitate that introduction. And I'm, I had met Ryan, you know, in, in and out. And, uh, but the first time I really, really talked to him was, um, when the pens were in the cup playoffs. Uh, during that ECMID experience and we were supposed to go to some dinner thing. And like, if I was a responsible pharmacist up and coming in my career, I would have like done the professional thing and done the dinner, but we didn't, we went and watched the game and it was, you know, a handful of us all with Pittsburgh ties. And that's uh, Jason helped, you know, facilitate that invited me to watch the game. And Jay Kempsel scored like a billion and a half goals. And I had a real conversation with Ryan Shields, which is how I ended up, deciding to come interview for this position and, and ended up moving to UPMC a couple months later. So I'm very, Aaron, I think, I think you can't neglect the fact that that was also the game that the pens eliminated the flyers. And so yes, it was sir. very Pittsburgh <laughs> moment. Cause one of our dear friends who is a Philly fan was there as well. So it was extra sweet all around. And it was a literally a night that changed, changed my life. And it started with me being like, I probably made the wrong decision professionally, but it turned out to be the right decision. So a little uh, Pittsburgh sports memory and a like to the listeners, like follow your heart, you know, do what you want to do and it'll work out. Um, okay. But my second favorite memory is my real like sports one. Uh, 2005 AFC championship when Jerome Bettis fumbled the ball, I cried. I burst into tears. Like I was such an avid fan and I was, I was watching it with my dad. I was in high school at the time. And like we were going to the Super Bowl that year, Jerome Bettis hometown, like the story was too good. And then he fumbles the football and I burst into tears like I'm sobbing. And then Ben makes that tackle. We end up winning the game. We end up winning the Super Bowl. Years later, I am at AACP pharmacy conference in DC and I flew in late by myself and I'm sitting at this sports bar at like 10 PM trying to get a burger before I have to go to this conference. I was a Walmart scholar back in the back in the day and in walks jerome bettis and i cannot believe it i am like dying and the only thing i say to this man as he sits at the bar next to me is i cried when you fumbled the ball in 2005 literally my first words to meet jerome bettis and he was just like i think so shocked that this random girl sitting next to him knew who he was and was a sports fan because this is you know in what 2014 or something like that uh, and so, and then I have this like awesome photo, which used to be my Twitter profile photo, I think, or maybe it's my Facebook profile photo still, who knows? Um, but that, that holds a special place in my heart. Did yeah. So two things to comment on there. Again, I have to weigh in on these great, these great moments in Pittsburgh history that one, thank God, Nick Harper cut in instead of out and just easily ran for a touchdown. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. Thank God Nick Harper got stabbed by his wife the night before, and that's why he got tackled by Big Ben Roethlisberger. I feel attacked as a Colt season ticket holder that you would come on 
the Pharmacy to Dose pod and bring up one of the worst memories in Indianapolis history. So, Nick, let's let's not forget about your boy Vanderjacked. Vanderjacking at about three field goals to the right uh, at the end of that game. That was beautiful. But that's okay because we got robbed because Troy picked that one off that they didn't give him credit for before that. Yeah, and it's also like it's uh, it just carries affectionately into my life because then I became an Auburn you know, attendee and just watch field goal kickers at Alabama make my life so good for years and years and years. So, Okay. So we got, we're at They a, can't recover from this. Everyone tuning into this podcast is like, what are we talking about again? <laughs> no, no, no. We're at a high. Nothing about pharmacy. We're, we're literally at the peak excitement of these two now. Cause we're about to get to the mercy trial. So we just went from their favorite oh, yeah. Pittsburgh sports memories of all time to let's talk about a trial that, Uh, I think we have some thoughts on, right? I think it'd be good for us to look, talk a little bit about like what kind of, what's the history of beta-lactame antibiotic dosing in the critically ill? What are, what do you all kind of consider as like landmark articles when you're kind of thinking about the history in this, in this realm? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll lead us off there. Um, and, and I'll focus on the RCT since we're talking about the Mercy trial, which was, which is still to date the, the largest RCT looking at uh, continuous infusion versus intermittent infusion of beta-lactams for uh, septic patients. I think we'll probably come back to that septic thing a little bit later, but again, that's, we call that foreshadowing in AP English. Um, but, but most people will talk about um, Bliss and Bling 2 as kind of the two they focus on, but what people neglect, and it makes me a little sad, is that you, know, you wouldn't have a Bling 2 without a Bling 1, right? And so if you actually go back to the, the genesis of this story, there was a, a small RCT that came out in CID in 2013. Uh, this study was actually performed in 2010-2011. So again, that's how far back this kind of question goes at this point. And this was a really small study. Uh, they were looking at continuous infusion versus intermittent infusion, beta-lactams. It was an RCT, double-blinded. Um, the doses, as you can imagine, at this time of piptazo meropenem Tickercillin clavulonic acid even was in this study. But if you look, they weren't maybe ideal, but this was a starting point. But really, again, 30 patients in each arm. The goal was just to show you got better time above the MIC, which they did show. Um, what was really intriguing about in Bling 1 is that obviously 30 patients in each group, you're not going to be powered to see much of anything. Um, but they showed some stuff. Uh, there was a statistical improvement in clinical cure. Um, in that study, and there was a huge mortality signal. Again, none of this was significant because two patients will drive an outcome in 30 patients, 30 patient studies when you're talking about mortality, but a lot of cool stuff came out of that. And that's really what led to both Bling 2 and Bliss, which ultimately came out uh, around the same time in 2015. So just to kind of go in the order that they were published, Bliss was a study that was very similar to, to, to Bling 1. The difference here is that this took place in Malaysia at a couple of institutions there. They, they powered this study um, basically to prove that that big clinical cure difference in Bling 1 was real. Uh, so they had 70 patients in each group. So you can see we're inching our way up in numbers of patients here. Um, and if you look at the results in that study, they were very similar to what you saw in Bling 1. So almost very reassuring data. Again, small numbers. But you saw a benefit in clinical cure. You saw better PK parameters met. And once again, you saw this numerical signal for, for mortality. But numbers were too small. And so that leads us to the biggest study prior to Mercy, which was Bling 2. Um, and so, again, the same investigators as Bling 1, although they kind of expanded the sites to, to increase the size. And now we're looking at 210 patients in each group in this study. They didn't just look for PK as their principal outcomes in this. They actually were looking for alive days alive and in, in out of the ICU. Um, they also looked at cure. They looked at mortality. And what was different about this study is that outside of the PK variables, they didn't see anything. And really, in my opinion, there wasn't really even much of a hint of anything. Again, clinical cure rates were similar. Um, alive and ICU free days were similar. Mortality rates were similar. Um, there was a, a slight numerical decrease in mortality, and that's actually what powers Bling 3, which we'll probably talk about a little bit later. 
Um, but in this one, they didn't really find any difference. And that's kind of where this was left. But one thing I think I want to highlight, and I was in, in preparing for this, Nick, I, I, I was looking back at Bling Tu again, and, and they had a really interesting quote in the discussion of, of, the, of that section in Bling Tu. And I'm just going to quote it because I think it sets the stage for some issues that we might talk about today, which is, quote, unquote, the inclusion of participants with potential non-infectious diagnoses non-susceptible infections and recipients of RRT may disguise the potential advantages of continuous infusion for patients with normal renal function and susceptible infections. And I think that that's a really important thing that we should keep in mind as we talk about the trial today. And I'll stop there. Yeah, that was well done, Jason. I think that's what I was going to tack on. And just so our listeners are aware, 19 was a 19% of patients in Bling 2 had a pathogen like 19%. So it's hard to know whether or not the study answered the question of does continuous infusion improve outcomes for patients with infections Um, because we just don't know. And so we are going to talk about that a lot later as we talk about Mercy. Um, I will touch on Bling 3 a little bit more here just because I think it fits. So Bling 3 then for our audience members who may not be aware is enrolling I think it actually, I think it just finished enrollment. Yeah, um, yeah just updated. So 7,000 plus patients across the world looking at continuous infusion versus intermittent. They have a 90-day mortality endpoint, which we'll talk about later. Um, and so we really, really look forward to that. that. I think that was 70 ICUs globally. Again, Jason Roberts and his team leading a lot of this. So excited to see their data. Um, but we can talk later about the endpoints and whether or not we expect to see a difference there. Um, I guess the only other background literature I'd like to touch on before we get into Mercy for people interested in this space or wondering where this even came from, some key publications to point out would be um, one by Felton and colleagues. Tom Lodiz is the senior author on this paper in AAC in 2012. This is, for me, probably one of the landmark papers in that they looked at pip Tezo monte carlo simulation, so these curves we love to take screenshots of and put on slides, and they looked at exposures in hospitalized patients with hospital-derived infections, and like, lo and behold, their exposures are less than you'd expect, and it, it really is a nice study to show that real-world patients are not healthy volunteers, and package insert dosing is probably not reflective of what you see, especially in your critically ill patients. Um, and so that one for me is really important if you're going into like the history of CKPD here and, and prolonged infusions and, and what have you. So I just wanted to kind of point that out. The other thing I wanted to mention, so this isn't an RCT, these aren't RCTs specifically looking at this question of prolonged infusion versus intermittent or continuous source and intermittent. But in terms of other major landmark studies, I think the fact that all new beta lactams are coming to market as prolonged infusions in a way has like, it's like, I mean, companies wouldn't be doing that and making it harder on people to do it longer if there wasn't a really good reason and they really want their drug to work and they really think that this is the best way. So Mirapenem Vaberbactam is a three-hour infusion. Sofitricol is a three-hour infusion and they have a dose for augmented renal clearance, which is the first time we've seen that. Ceftazavi was a two-hour infusion. So they're being studied out the gate as these prolonged infusions, which kind of makes you even think, it could, should, can we even do 30-minute infusions anymore? So um, those are trials also to put this question into context. Well, that was a masterclass in kind of reviewing. I hope the listeners know when we started this list, the the sheer amount of articles that initially got sent out as landmark articles. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, kind of information in this space and like, um, like Jason had pointed out in the beginning, from the beginning to where we are now, we've slowly increased the number of patients that we're enrolling and looking at outcomes and things. And that kind of leads us to the reason that we're here today, right? The continuous infusion versus the intermittent administration of mirapenem in critically ill patients, right? The MERCY trial. So kind of give a brief overview into the study itself, and then we'll we'll get into all of our thoughts into it. So multi-center, double dummy, double blinded, randomized controlled, pragmatic trial. So double dummy means that in this study, right, patients receive the actual treatment based on randomization, but then the also the other is given as a placebo, 
right? So they'll get both. One's the active treatment and the other is the placebo. Um, physicians, investigators, patients were blinded. The only team members who actually knew the assignments were pharmacists or nurses. You're probably thinking, why nurses? So some of these hospitals didn't have 24-7 pharmacies. So they had to mix them at the bedside and things. So they make a note of that. Uh, patients were enrolled from June 2018 through August 2022, 31 ICUs in 26 hospitals. Um, now, it, the when you read the article, it says, you know, Italy, Croatia, Kazakhstan, Russia. Well, it's 22 Italian hospitals out of the 26, and then the other countries kind of make up the um, the other remaining hospitals. So they the primarily an Italian study, but definitely took p- part in some uh, some other countries as well. Now, they included adult ICU patients with sepsis or septic shock uh, with mirapenem as their antibiotic at the physician's clinical judgment, right? So they defined sepsis, right? The, the SERS and infection plus the SOFA greater than two, so the sepsis three definition, and then uh, septic shock, you had sepsis and then you required vasopressors to maintain that map and your lactate was greater than two. And then they um, excluded patients who were already on a carbapenem long-term steroids, very high SAPS2 score, so imminent death would be what that implies. Um, the dosing. So everyone got one gram loading dose, and then um, the standard was three grams. So the continuous infusion group got three grams over 24 hours. The bolus group got one gram every eight hours. And the renal function adjustment, right, they actually uh, reduced their dose at 50 mils per minute. And um, the trial notes that in special circumstances, clinical judgment basically is what they say. The uh, doses could be doubled um, for high MICs or based on that site of infection. And the duration was based on clinical judgment. So we'll kind of go through that, but it could be anywhere from, from 8 to 15 days. And it's a pragmatic trial, right? So it was up to that treating physician. Um, and when they look at the outcomes, right? So what were they studying? So the primary composite outcome was the 28-day mortality and emergence of the MDR, PDR pathogens at 28 days, um, so patients were followed for 28 days, um, and they used an attention-to-treat approach. Secondary outcomes included looking at those that composite um, outcome individually, and then, of course, 90-day all-cause mortality, 28-day antibiotic-free days, 28-day ICU-free days. You know, they had some predefined subgroup and post-hoc analyses. But 607 patients were randomized, 595 were included in that per protocol analysis. And let's get a quick look. Who were these patients, right? Quick look into those baseline characteristics. 95% white, about 65% male, 75% requiring mechanical ventilation, and about 60% were in septic shock. That average SAPS2 score was 44. Now, an interesting note is that patients were in the hospital for nine days and the ICU five days on average prior to study enrollment, which I thought was an interesting point. Now, there was no difference in the primary composite outcome between that continuous infusion arm and the intermittent arm, right? For that primary composite outcome, 47% versus 49%. And when you look at basically all the other secondary outcomes, there were really no differences. So... Listeners don't really want to hear me blab about this study. They kind of want to hear what your thoughts are on it. So whether it was reading the full text or seeing the results on social media, depending on how you found it, what were your first thoughts? Jason, let's, let's start with you. Yeah. Um, this is a PG version of the text or of, of, of the discussion, but I mean, I was, I was excited and annoyed uh, at the same time, if that's possible. Again, I love the fact that they did this trial. Um, if you read some of the details of this study, I think that I think that it's important that before we get into all of the other stuff, we we really do acknowledge um, just what they did in this trial. Again, you talk about that design, double blind, double dummy. That's not easy to pull off. Um, they, I mean, their outcome assessment was robust. They had about 35 different things they looked at. They got daily SOFA scores. They were looking at time to resolution. Like, I I think it's really important that we do start this off by highlighting that. Um, with that said, this is a really important question, right? And this is something that as, as, as an ID pharmacist or as pharmacists in general, as clinicians in general, if you're trying to implement you know, dose optimization strategies, continuous infusion, prolonged infusion, whatever it is, these types of data are going to be really influential. When you have something that comes out in JAMA, you know, who's going to see that? I mean, that's the Journal of the American Medical Association. You know who that audience is. And so it's a really important publication. And so, 
I, I think that that's where I got a little bit. That's where the annoyed part comes into it. Because first off, as you say, rapid reaction on Twitter, there's nothing that pisses me off more than the rapid reaction on Twitter because people have to comment on stuff immediately and they do not read what it says first. And so you get quotes from the publications, you get it just the top line results come out there and what's the top line results of the study, right? Nothing, right? It didn't work, it didn't help. And, and that's the first impression. And so you gotta start from a place where you gotta come back from that. And that's not easy to do. And, and so when you talk about rapid reaction to that, that's, I find that very frustrating. Um, the, 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 the second thing you asked is, you know, what's your rapid reaction when you read it? And, and admittedly, this was the first time I did a deep dive into all of these studies. Um, because again, I believe pretty heavily in the PKPD rationalization for these types of things. Uh, I know the previous studies were small and general. So I, again, I didn't take them one way or the other, the, the negative or positive results. Um, but I was actually quite surprised. And it's because all of these studies very, have really similar, um, methodology that really is going to dilute any effect that you're going to see. And it was the first time that that really kind of popped out for me. Some examples of this is, you know, as you talked about, Nick, to enroll into this study was the physician decided they needed meropenem. The, the intensivist decided they needed meropenem. So with every patient, like, I, 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 like without certain rules around that, of what that's going to mean, uh, that can mean a lot of stuff. I know Erin has some thoughts on, on that as well, and I'll let her in a second. But but even in addition to that, right, there's no rules surrounding needed a bug, uh, whether or not that bug is actually susceptible to the drug that you give. If you actually look at the definitions of infection, they don't exist, right? It's that the patient has sepsis or septic shock. They have a suspected source of that, but whether that source actually played out what the definitions, what the criteria for that are, are, are they're, they're not defined, right? And so we don't even know that they had infections, right? And so that's a big thing. And, and there's more, and I'll get into that soon, but I was actually kind of my rapid reaction of these studies in general was just that I was surprised um, at, at how, how much that effect would probably be diluted um, just based off of the population that's included. Yeah, I would I would completely agree with with Jason. Importantly, starting with like congratulations to the team for conducting a very robust trial, which is very hard to do, especially when you're doing it in multiple countries. It's important data and we need to answer this question. Unfortunately, I don't think that this trial answers the question of whether or not continuous infusion beta lactams help critically ill infected patients for the reasons Jason started to allude to. So when we talk about the inclusion criteria, that would be my biggest is that I think this trial needs done wherein patients are only included if they're infected with an organism susceptible to the drug. And so if we look at this study in particular, you have 303 patients enrolled to continuous, 304 enrolled to intermittent. So huge trial. Again, kudos to this. But when you look at those patients, and I agree completely with what Jason said about the rapid reaction on Twitter, if you read an abstract, you know nothing about the study and you shouldn't comment until you've read the study. Because when you look at the study population, 57 patients had no pathogen cultured at all. Seven patients didn't have that pathogen tested to a carbapenem. 84 patients had pathogens that were not susceptible to carbapenems. So they're on inactive therapy for their infection, which is a sign of death. And that is honestly true of these countries enrolled. So Croatia, Kazakhstan, I think Italy and Russia were the other ones. Resistance to carbapenems there is astounding when you're talking only about gram-negative organisms. And then we'll get into this later, but this study also included gram-positive organisms, which isn't really the question at hand. And so my back of the napkin math, if I did this right, I probably did it wrong. Jason will correct me. Um, hundred. Thank you. Yeah. 155 patients from my math, which is probably wrong, were, shouldn't have been enrolled in this study, in my opinion. <laughs> so uh, that's 51%. And so um, I, that's my biggest thing. I think the inclusion criteria could have been tighter. And uh, along with that, I mean, Nick, you can speak to this, but what is sepsis even? Uh, it's, it's completely nebulous and it's not the, what we're trying to answer here. And so it was such loose inclusion. Um, and so septic shock, I like that was tight. Start of vasopressors and a lactate, great. 
Septic shock is objective. Septic shock works. I think we want to answer this question in patients without septic shock too. Like you have critically ill patients that may not be in septic shock and it's important to know the best antibiotic schemes for those patients. So I'm not saying like only do a study with septic shock, but the sepsis definition is too nebulous um, to help. And then when you you know, pile on the fact that these patients either weren't infected, infected with gram positive things, or infected with carbapenem resistant isolates and weren't on active therapy. This study doesn't answer the question at hand. And then the last thing I'll say is again, kudos to the authors for this design. But if I wanted to answer this question, mirapenem would be the last antibiotic I would look at um, because you use mirapenem for patients with ESBL bacteremia, and that's about it, right? Pseudo-resistance to meropenem is super high, even in the United States. And so if I have a patient on meropenem, it's because they have ESBL bacteremia. ESBL E. coli has so low MICs usually to meropenem, fortunately, right? And we get pretty okay exposures, even if you're using 1Q8. We use 2Q8. So it's like the antibiotic I'm worried the least about in terms of an exposure issue. And so I'd be much more interested in doing this trial with cefepime, looking at continuous first intermittent there. Could I save some drug? Like, could I get four grams of cefepime continuously versus two Q8 intermittently? Jason's making a face, but he's wrong because those exposures are probably the same. But see, we need to answer that question. So, I, like, at the highest of levels, I would love to see this trial with cefepime before I saw it with meropenem. Um, just because, again, the thing I use meropenem to treat, I know I feel pretty good about ESBL E. coli. But, uh, yeah, did I miss anything in the background? That was awesome. Um, uh, I, I just a couple things I just want to comment on that you, that you mentioned. I, I, I thought you made some really good points. I think that sepsis definition again. This is sepsis, what which used to be called severe sepsis, but is now sepsis. I get that confused a lot, and it's actually super important for antibiotic exposures and and time to appropriate therapy. Um, which is another thing we should probably talk about, but that's not where I was going right now. Um, one of the criteria that was different, if you look at all the other studies, they're all severe sepsis as, as measured by end organ hypoperfusion, right? Some evidence of new organ dysfunction. This one had this like hybrid of old sepsis and new sepsis. And, yeah. and I think the one thing that's important to note that the, 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 the thing that made theirs different is that they included if you had a sofa of two or higher. Um, now that is associated with a 10% mortality rate, but if you look at goes, what goes into the sofa, if you have CKD, you're going to meet that criteria because um, your creatinine is above two. You had 20% of patients in this study who had CKD. So whether they had that any sort of end organ hypoperfusion related to to um, the actual infections, unclear. Mechanical ventilation gets you a point. These were long-standing patients who had been in the ICU for a long time. Um, again, things like that. So I, I think that that's something that I would just think about is that it's a little bit different, um, particularly when you have this situation pop up that a third of the patients never had pathogens identified, um, sources of infection identified. So it, it does loosen that criteria that you probably included some patients that weren't ultimately infected, which of yeah. course the antibiotics not going to help in that situation. Aaron, my back of the napkin math was a little bit different, but I think your your point is so well taken because I actually couldn't, it was really hard to figure out how many patients had carbapenem susceptible gram negative infections. Yes. Yeah. Um, and you have to kind of try to piece it together through all of these things. But it is, I, I think that at the very least, it is the minority of patients in this study, which is certainly um, going to be problematic. Right. And that's the question we want to answer. So whether in this study, it would be as continuous versus intermittent meropenem improve outcomes in patients with carbapenem-susceptible gram-negative infections. If you're studying cefepime, it would be cefepime-susceptible gram-negative infections. And so that's, I think, really the kicker. Actually, I'm laughing. I'm looking at my comments on my PDF, and I have, on one page I have, what infections, question mark. Um, and then I also have 50% of people get resistance, question mark, which we'll talk about. The other inclusion, I forgot to mention this, that I would have excluded are the COVID patients. And this is going to be a question that plagues all of us forever when we try to, if you have a prospective enrolling trial or if you're trying to do observational data from 2020 to 2022, what do you do with your COVID patients? Sometimes I think they can be included. It depends on the question you're answering. For this one, I would have excluded them. It was like 11% of the population. And later when they do analyses to show supplement, supplement page 41, because the supplement is where it's at. You die more if you have cancer, COVID, you're old, you have a trach, 
or you got antibiotics in the last 90 days, or you have pneumonia, or if you were in the ICU for a long time, which like, these are the reasons people die. And so, but the fact that COVID pulls out there pretty substantially, I think is reason to exclude the COVID. Yeah, I couldn't get a good feel for whether or not COVID was their index infection too, right? Was that just the COVID patients who then, you know, went on to develop a secondary infection or was that the actual infection? Um, and I don't know what's coming out of Didier Raoult's lab lately, but I don't think even Mayor Penham has in vitro activity against COVID, so, so against SARS-CoV-2. So, um, and although in Vero cells, right, well, what doesn't, right? So maybe it does, I don't know. But I, I couldn't get a feel for whether or not that was their actual infection or if they were like history of COVID. I, I couldn't get a good idea of that. Yeah, related, there's really not clear about whether or not Mayor Penham is like, the antibiotic that was started at the point of septic shock or if they were on antibiotics and as you said the physician decided now it's Miro day and then they could enroll and so it was like some patients definitely said they had previous carbapenem exposure but it wasn't it wasn't clear when is that 90 days ago or for this current infection and we're adding Miro on we know combination therapy was allowed which is going to confound things too, which is why I think it's important that the inclusion is tightened to only susceptible pathogens. Um, and so all of that is like, it wasn't clear to me if they were failing antibiotics and therefore got Miro, which would be bad. Right. Or if they were, if that was the first, or even if then they were escalated off Miropenem, say they got Miropenem for 48 hours and then escalated to Septazavi or something like that. How does that count? It was unclear. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up. I agree that that is a huge thing, which also leads to, you know, there's no mention of time to appropriate therapy, right? Or whether patients even got appropriate appropriate therapy therapy for the pathogens that were identified. And obviously, those are going to be huge determinants of outcomes in patients. I agree. I agree. Like this trial was was pretty incredible from a... um, like design and I guess a, maybe not design, design's the bad word, but execution because there's the only major protocol deviations were not obtaining blood cultures prior to Miropenem administration. And then there were only 12 patients that, that had enrollment violations, right? That ultimately weren't included out of 600. So, you know, kudos to those kind of the, the study and, and research yeah. coordinators. So Nick, to, so Nick, to comment on that, though, and this is one thing that was a little bit odd maybe to me i I don't know i'll be interested to be your thoughts is that if if you look through the method section it appears that it was the clinician who made the decision that it was marrow time that also randomized the patient and and that is so anybody who's in that unit making that decision so that probably leads to some of the small numbers of protocol deviations but it's also not typical, right? That's not what you would normally see, that it's just whoever's, you've made the clinical decision to put them on meropenem and you're enrolling them into the study. Right. I, I didn't even they realize did, that. Yeah, that the enrollment was unique, uh, as Jason described, so that that's why that tracks. But I will say, I did have a note to myself, I said the commitment to follow up was impressive. Amazing. So the, yes, the, the layers they put in to do the 90-day follow-up, they know patients lost the follow-up at 90 days. You were either dead or they contacted you, which is unheard of. So that that's amazing. That's very that's very good. That's very cool. So how hard would this study, like Jason, you were talking about the pragmatic approach and how, you know, there are potentially like some, some issues with that. How hard logistically would this study have been to conduct with like a strict protocolized approach to the design and treatment compared to what they ultimately chose? Yeah, again, and I, I want to be clear. I think it's hard what they did. Um, and, and they, like I said, I, I just, I think it's so important we always come back to that, that they put a lot into this and, and it's, it's pretty, pretty impressive. Um, clinical trials are hard. Um, and, and I think that that's, that, that's a basis. But, but I would say that again, and whether it's pragmatic, again, pragmatic is a word that people like to use. Um, it's like they learned it in college that it's a cooler way of saying practical. And so I'm going to use the word pragmatic whenever possible. Um, but, but again, regardless of the pragmatic or not, because everything is ultimately pragmatic. Um, I, for me, it, it's, and, and Aaron's talked about this some already. But for me, it's like, if the question you're going to ask, right, is going to be, 
does continuous infusion of meropenem improve outcomes over intermittent infusion of meropenem? Does dose optimization matter? The study needs to be limited to the patients who can actually benefit from it. And so I actually don't necessarily have an issue with the patients, how they got patients into the study. Now, again, some of the stuff there and brought up around, you know, were they failing something else? When was the actual septic event start? I think all of that needs to be cleaned up a little bit on the front end. But for me, the, the bigger part is, is that you can enroll patients at that time, but to stay in the study, right? They need to have a potential benefit, right? So they have a carbapenem susceptible gram negative, and you focus the question on the population that's going to matter. So the downfall of that, Nick, as you kind of talk about, is that you got a lot of patients to get to the number. Again, as Aaron said, the majority of patients ultimately didn't have that. So from a trial standpoint, you still need to monitor people for safety, all of those types of things. And so it does complicate it. But it is the right question to ask in that situation. And then you can focus it. And I think uh, Aaron's point about bling three kind of drives this home, right? To try to appropriately ask this question based off of their power calculations, they're enrolling 7,000 patients, right? So and if you actually look on their clinical trials, it, it looks like they complete enrollment at 7,200. And, and so I think that that kind of shows you that it's doable to do it that way, but it obviously is going to take a lot more resources, a lot more time, and that may or may not be practical at the institutions who are running the trial. So did you both agree with their kind of empiric dosing regimen or I guess their treatment strategies, right, from dose changes to duration? You know, Aaron, you you mentioned this in the beginning. Why don't you Why don't you take the lead on this one? Yeah, that was something that stood out to me. We're admittedly, we implemented a dose optimization protocol of a beta lactams that largely Jason helped me and, and taught me about. And then I brought to UPMC. Uh, so we empirically for patients with septic shock and sepsis, we give two grams every eight hours over a three hour infusion of mirapenem for everyone. And then if you have culture confirmed ESBL or Klebsiella bacteremia, we, and you've stabilized, we drop to 1Q8 because we do think the exposures are okay with 1Q8 at that setting. But in that first 48 hours, empiric, if you're critically ill, we're giving 2Q8. That's also then to cover, you know, higher MIC pseudo, if in, uh, although only about 50% of our pseudo is mirapenem susceptible, even with dose optimization, but then also, you know, enterobacters, serratias, citrobacters, things like this that um, might be cefepime resistant, but meropenem susceptible at like a meropenem MIC of two. And I want to ensure I'm getting good exposures and hitting my target. So we're pretty aggressive with our meropenem dosing up front. We know it's really safe. We have, you know, 2010, 2012 data from when we treated carbapenemase producing isolates with, with meropenem because we didn't have beta-lactamase inhibitors at that point in time that could, you know, bind to KPC. And so we're giving 12, 14 grams of meropenem a day has a pretty good safety window. So I feel good with, with six. And then we just, again, we drop the dose down if patients have stabilized or they're going home. Um, so they did one Q8, which is an, or a three gram continuous infusion. And then they dose adjusted at a creatinine clearance of 50 mils per minute down to two grams. We don't dose adjust until a creatinine clearance of 30 um, at, at my institution. So this to me, a lot of these patients were underdosed out the gate, but there's no therapeutic drug monitoring and there's no MICs and pathogens to correlate. Again, we don't know any of that information, so I can't really say, but I will say that the UPMC dosing strategy is much more aggressive. Yeah, and Aaron, one thing I would add on to that is that the physicians in charge could also just increase the dose if they wanted to. Um, so about 15% of patients in each arm went up to six grams a day. And so again, when, and who got that? What was the driver of that is not, is not clearly defined. And so anytime you're looking at dose optimization, when you're adding in flexibility to just change the dose because you're concerned for the patient, they have an MIC that's borderline, whatever that ends up being, you're going to take away the ability to do that. And I think I'm glad you, you brought up what you did, Aaron, is, is that, again, whether meropenem is the ideal drug for this or not, I think is a question, unless you're trying to cover low-level resistant organisms, which a good number of foods can be. Again, for us, we see a good number of foods that lie in the four to eight range where that might be a benefit. 
Um, but as you talked about at the beginning, when you talk about the data from Felton way back when, right, the, a drug like Piptazo is where you're really going to see this play out if this is going to become a thing, because you'll see a lot of the MICs be on the upper end, particularly when you're talking about pseudomonas. Um, and there are issues with intermittent infusion dosing based off of, of, of septic patient PK data. And so, again, whether or not it's the right drug, right population is, is certainly open for discussion. So statistically speaking, right, if we're if we're thinking of trying to design this trial, Aaron, is it would it have been possible to just include those patients that you talked about that were receiving mirapenem that had a bacteria isolate that was susceptible to mirapenem? Like statistically that that's possible, right? Um interesting question. Is it possible? Yes, but I think most of these centers are probably not using rapid diagnostic technologies, you're probably not getting your full susceptibilities till day four, day three, maybe if you're really lucky, day four, sometimes day five, just depends on how the lab workflows go, which is true of a lot of care centers in the United States still as well. This is like a huge problem, the delay in, in culture data and knowing what to do for the patient. Um, and so you're, so you'd have to enroll them, do all of this stuff for at least the first four or five days, and then you can finally say then whether or not they remain in the trial or not. And so perhaps you could have this where you do everyone and then only analyze the patients with susceptible pathogens. And then, of course, you would just need more patients because it's going to be less. In these countries, carbapenem resistance, again, is so prevalent that it's going to be very challenging. Can I just add one, one piece? Because one thing we haven't talked about yet, but I think it, 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 it might be the right place, is what the primary outcome was as well. Because anytime you start talking about the number of patients and is it possible to do this, it depends on what you're trying to see, right? So I, I do want to take a second to, to, to talk about this. And so their primary outcome um, was a composite um, of 28-day mortality or the development of, of XDR, extensively drug-resistant, meaning resistant to all but one or two drugs, um, or pan-drug-resistant bacteria. Um, and, and so the, the first thing is, is that those are two very different things. Um, and, and whether or not that those should be combined in a composite is very debatable. Um, I, I would argue it's not debatable, but at the very least it is debatable. Again, if, if, if you have more resistance developed because patients are alive in one group, then that those shouldn't balance each other out. I would rather be alive with a resistant organism than be dead with a susceptible one. And so I think that, I, I think that that's one piece of this. And, 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 and again, so then they, they powered the study that made the the event rate projected in the quote-unquote control arm to be about 50%. Um, and, and if you look, again, that's going to be a big way that they get to their, their power calculation and their numbers for this study. Because, again, even in their, if you look, they published their, again, these authors did an amazing job of, of very transparently talking about how they got where they did. They also, they, they published a few years ago their study protocol. And, and basically how they got to those numbers was anticipating about half of that to be due to death and half of that to be due to the development of resistant organisms. Um, and so, again, in addition to the fact that you don't want to kind of conflate those two things, I think as a reader and as a clinician, even if you say that it's okay to add those two together, you should still look at how they kind of got to their numbers. And what's interesting is if you actually look, because I was really curious of where they got to the 25% of patients were going to develop resistant organisms. And if you actually follow their, their studies or, or the, the, their references, it's, a, it's an old publication that was looking at de-escalation of carbapenems. And it had a resistance, an MDR development rate of um, 39%. So patients who are randomized to get carbapenems in the study, 39% of them developed an MDR. Um, so two things about that. One is MDR is different than XDR, so that's not necessarily directly applicable to what we were doing here. But secondly, is that if you actually look at that, the MDR that were developed in that study were MRSA, which are carbapenem resistant, steno, which are carbapenem resistant, and an ESBL producing E. coli, which is carbapenem susceptible. And so carbapenem infusion strategy would not be expected to impact any of those things. And so, again, it's really important to think about that. And so then that makes you get up to a 50% 
or 52%, I think, with their numbers of suspected event rate. And then they powered it to show a decrease to 40%. But again, where that comes from, I'm not, I'm not particularly clear either. Yeah. That's well said. I don't have anything to say other than, I guess, to summarize. And that what we care about with resistance developing is I had a, I had a gram negative drug of interest, susceptible infection. And then later I had the same pathogen and it's now resistant to the drug of interest. Like that's the question we want answered when we talk about resistance development as an endpoint in a perfect world. You're pairing this with whole genome sequencing. You're seeing if it's the same bug that really developed resistance versus just getting a new infection with a new strain of the organism that is resistant because you may have gotten that from another patient, the environment or yourself. I mean, it's very complicated resistance development is, of course, so crucial to public health as a whole for that individual patient and every patient that follows them. But to really answer that question well takes a lot of nuance and care and enhanced lab testing and things like that. And that's just not what happened here. And and to Jason's point, the inclusion of the gram positives really, I think, throws us off. So talking about their their kind of sample size calculation and stuff, Jason, from a methodologic perspective, right, this trial, it's the biggest, you, you all have mentioned it, you've got to reiterate, it's the biggest trial that we've had. It's six, a little over 600 patients, the pre-planned sample size. But was that adequate, do we think, that to try to find that 12% reduction in the composite outcome that their, that their kind of model or design was, was intended to find? Yeah, so... This is, a, this is a tough one, and, and I say that because, I, I, again, I, I always want to come back to 600 patients is the biggest study. That, this is the biggest study that looked at this, and I think that that's really important. The reason that the other studies were, you know, 140 patients is because they were powering based off of like 30% differences in, in, in clinical cure based off of that OG Bling 1 trial way back when in 2013, a decade ago. And, and so... Again, I think when math is math, right? They showed, they did their math. They showed their remainders, right? They saw, you saw how it works. Their, their math is accurate. I think the, the issue is just, is one, as we talked about already, is, is this fair to combine these two things, which I think we talked about. I, I personally don't believe it is. Two, is there a basis for those numbers? And, and I don't know that there necessarily is, particularly with regards to the resistance development piece. And then three is based off who you plan to include in this study is the reduction you're powered to see reasonable and could you see it in this population? And and again, to, to, to Aaron's earlier point, if we start at 300, but only 100 are actually patients of interest to the question who have a a gram negative that is susceptible to carbapenems, then that math goes out the window, right? So you basically would have to see triple the effect in that population, assuming nothing occurs by chance in the, in the rest of the population. And so um, I'm not surprised to see no difference. And, and again, I, I think that one of the other things is if I did see a difference, I wouldn't even be sure what to make of it, um, particularly because, again, a patient who could get enrolled with no pathogen, right, end up having a coag negative staph isolated somewhere down the line that meets the XDR definition, and that would be the development of resistance. Right. And so I, I don't know exactly what that would mean as regards to infusion strategy of a carbapenem. So the supplementary appendix, right? I, 59 pages. It's got 22 <laughs> tables filled with information. We can't read this study and fully understand the results without having that pulled up next to it. But what would we say are the are the top tables if we had to power rank them? You know, if there were three or four that we had to be sure to see, what are what are those? Yeah, I'll I'll I'll, I'll go for this one. You take uh, it. Okay. Well, I, I I but I I definitely want to see if Erin agrees with me. Um, my guess is she won't because that's how we that's how we roll. Um, but but just just looking at it, the one that really is interesting to me. Um, is E table 17, which is always a fun thing to say. E table 17. Um, and that's, that's a lot of numbers. But anyway, so basically, if you look at the title of this, and I have it pulled up here to help myself, it says MICT, so modified intensive treatment analysis of patients with evidence of MDR at baseline. And it's looking at the outcome. So they're, they're, their baseline culture that was either at enrollment or within 48 hours before was baseline MDR. 
And then they looked at all the outcomes in that population. Now, again, MDR is extremely vague because as we've talked about before, gram positive, MRSA is going to fall in this category. Cognitive staff is going to fall in this category. A lot of things that aren't of interest are going to fall in this category. But if I'm looking at, but let's take that aside for a second. If I'm looking at a study to see if continuous infusion meropenem is better than intermittent infusion meropenem, both with regards to mortality or cure-based outcomes and the development of resistance, those that are, again, if they were gram-negatives only, those that are MDR at baseline are the population that I'm interested in. And again, I cannot read too much in this, and I think that's an important lesson of this, is that you can't say that there are study design issues that make it hard to interpret, but then try to interpret the table that you really like. Um, that's not a fair thing to do. But if you look at it, it shows, again, there's nothing in the 28-day mortality, but if you look at the develop the emergence of new pan drug resistant or XDR organisms, there's this little signal there that maybe there's less with continuous infusion. Now, again, I can't say that is even relevant to the pathogens that the patient has, but that's the actual population that I'm really interested in. So that's one that I would take a look at and see how you interpret. Again, you may have different thoughts on it than I do, but that's okay. Um, I think that's my first one, but I'm going to give Aaron a chance to weigh in here before I give you yeah. another. Yeah, I don't know what to do with that table because I think the gram positives are in there too. Again, like I, I, I'm like less excited about that table, but I'm super excited about E table 13 because this is the, <laughs> these are these resistant infections and what showed up. And again, it's acinetobacter, which we would never use mirapenem to do. It's steno, it's BRE, it's coag-negative staph. So you look at like, you read the paper and you're like, 50% of patients got resistance. This is terrible. And you're thinking you're breeding all this nasty, like carbapenem resistant Klebsiella. And then you get into what that actually was. And you realize like, oh, I, this has nothing to do with the study drug or how the study drug was administered. Um, and then E-table 14 is what the patients got as treatment for these infections. And you just see a whole host of combo of weirdness. Some people continued on mirapenem. So not really sure they were, or they were using mirapenem in combination. I don't really know. So those were really interesting to me. And then I really like E table 19 because that's where I pulled <laughs> the information about uh, what else was associated with it, it's their univariate for associations with the primary, which is it just tracks, right? Like COVID, vents, pneumonia, being of advanced age. Like these are the things that make you, and cancer, like these are the things that make you have worse outcomes. So that, that tracks that's good, but it goes back to what we said about who should be included and excluded or what should you adjust for, et cetera, in these. So those are the ones I, I liked. See, Nick, I told you she would disagree with me, and, and I appreciate that. And one other thing that I want to comment on, just we're talking about this, this extensive supplement. Again, props, because this is transparent as you can be. Like, here's all of our data. Make of it as you want to. One thing that is interesting but also extremely confusing to me again trying to look for what i would be most interested in a say like this is if you look at e figure so we're into the figures now e figure for a um so basically what this was doing is that this was looking at the the effect of treatment as a function of certain of certain subgroups but what they focused on in the subgroups here were pathogens with, quote-unquote, high MICs, the carbapenems. And so they go through all pathogens, acetobacter, club, and pseudomonas, and they, and they defined high MICs as those being one dilution away from the breakpoint. So theoretically, once again, this is the population that I'm most interested in. But what I, where I get really confused with this, and again, uh, our listeners, I encourage you to tell me what I'm missing here because I struggle to figure it out. Is that if you go back to the actual publication and you, and you go to, and you go to, what is that, table two, and you look at the microbiology, there's like 70 patients who have CLEB, 50 patients who have pseudomonas, um, and, and so on and so forth. But if you look at this and they talk about the number of CLEB that are one dilution from the MIC, the, de the denominator is actually higher. The denominators are 87 patients or 91 patients. And so I'm really struggling to get those two to jive together well, because this is the population I'm interested in, but I can't understand how there are more CLEBs that have a high MIC than CLEBs altogether. And, and, and that holds true for all of the pathogens that are listed in there. So again, it just added another level of confusion to me to try to interpret this. 
And that's a really good point, Jason. And that table is interesting too, because, you know, people are going to talk about, well, they didn't do TDM in this trial and all these other things. And honestly, I don't think it, it would matter, not the not with these patients, because to do therapeutic drug monitoring, you have to have a target. <laughs> like you have to have a goal. You have to say, this concentration tells me something about this patient. I can do something with this dose based on this concentration, based on my patient. And we don't know the MICs. Again, half of these pathogens are irrelevant. And so um, I think that is a nice like conversation piece and a nice table to, to get that, to get that discussion going too. Like it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have mattered if you don't have anything to aim for. So. Yeah, the other thing about TDM would be, are you going to only do it in one arm, right? Because if you're going to TDM, any do- infusion strategy difference between the two arms, presumably you're going to dose adjust that away down the road. That's a good point. Yeah. Actually, I hadn't thought of that. My favorite sentence in this whole manuscript is <laughs> that they use this certain type of mirror penum and it's like parentheses, a generic version produced by this company, which has the longest documented stability after reconstitution. And like, quite frankly, if you take nothing from this publication other than you can, in fact, give mirror penum continuously, that is to me, I highlighted it and I said, this is the best sentence in the manuscript because that's pushback we get on, you know, old generics and Miro aren't stable and you can't possibly give it longer than 30 minutes. Meanwhile, you're giving mirror penum vapor back to him over three hours and not blinking. So, um, yeah, that's, that's this is valuable information out of this. Meeting. Yeah, Aaron, I thought, you, I thought you were going to say you have since ordered all of that for UPMC and no one else can get it. <laughs> yeah, we took all, all of this <laughs> generic. No, we give it, I mean, like I said, we give it over three hours. We give it, although I will say if I have to discharge a patient on Miro, we have to do two bags. We switch them at 12 hours because I haven't been able to convince anyone otherwise. So truly maybe the most valuable thing we learn is that it is indeed stable continuously. God bless. So, Let's let's end with this question because I think we've I think we've really dissected everything from from who we thought was included to the resistance. Even talking about some of the the thoughts of you know TDM, which is a question that certainly has has come up when people are talking about it. And after going through and discussing it, how how do you all think this the results of this study should get incorporated? You know, into we're talking about ID and critical care practice. Like, what's what's going to be the role? How should this be used? Aaron, let's let's start with you, and and Jason can can back clean up afterwards. I don't think the results of this study should change anything about how we deliver care right now. Um, as we've discussed, I don't think it answers the questions that we have. If anything, I would double down on saying it's very valuable that we learned that you can, in fact, give miropenem continuously or at least over a prolonged infusion. So that might change that might change people's practice, right? They might be able to reference this and say, I, you know, I've had these stability concerns previously. Now I have this data to show that it's stable. Um, otherwise, no, I really I don't think this changes anything we're doing right now. I think we have a lot of unanswered questions still on site. For the Bling 3 data, I will double down again on saying I don't know about 90-day mortality as an endpoint for an acute infection. I wouldn't expect your miropenem or any antibiotic infusion strategy to impact your death at 90 days, but we'll see. And you see that in figure two of this manuscript, too, with these Kaplan-Meyers. I mean, the the split happens on day two, day three, day four, um, and then it just stays the same thereafter. So we'll see. Yeah, I think you've, like, quintuple doubled down at this point I, I, I don't know how many like it's like the 32nd level now or something like that I'm trying to do the, the math in my head but I, to really, really I, I think admit, two, you know. two things that would comment on that, that Aaron said is that one um, unfortunately um, I think that this study will do more harm than good um, I, I do believe that we're going to have to spend a lot of time explaining all of this stuff that we just talked about um, because Again, this is in JAMA. Uh, this is a this is a high-profile publication that, on the surface, shows no difference. And and I think that it's going to be a lot of again. It might blunt some momentum at institutions for extended infusions or prolonged infusions or continuous infusions. And so, unfortunately, I think that that's just the reality that we have to deal with. Uh, the second thing with Bling Three that I would note is that. I'm actually really excited for that study as well. Again, 7,200 patients, even if you kind of drop down to the population of interest, you should still have enough to see something um, if it exists. And one thing that I think is notable, uh, again, I think that Aaron's 90-day mortality point is a really good one um, because it's all going to muddy out at that point in time. But they have a lot of other endpoints in that study as well. And one thing that one thing that I would note about it is that they actually did the DSMB. So they have a DSMB 
who reviewed it halfway. So at 3,500 patients. And if you look at the DSMB charter for Bling 3, it says that, you know, if there's a clear benefit for any of our outcomes at 3,500 patients, we'll stop the study. Uh, and they didn't stop the study. So I, I think that you should kind of have that in your mind. Again, it's 3,500 patients. It doesn't take a huge difference percentage-wise to show clear statistical advantage of something. And so I think that that's important to know. Again, we'll see what the data show, but I think that that's, at least for me, that's what I have in my mind right now when it comes to Bling 3. Yeah, and you you mentioned that you're going to kind of, you know, this might do more harm than good. To be honest, right, I said in, in the intro, um, that's why I wanted to have you both on because that's the feeling that I got, right, is and that's the, the feeling that I got when you when you talk about it briefly with people is that, oh, wow, maybe maybe continuous or extended infusions isn't isn't the way and you know, we're going to do what we can to stop that, right? Pharmacy to dose is the name of this. So we got to make sure we're dosing things right. I like the positive spin, Aaron, because the example I'd use in the critical care world is like the Clover's trial that looked at restrictive versus liberal fluids, no difference, but we got benefit. We had data for peripheral vasopressors, right? So, you know, not all, we might not get the outcomes we wanted, but I like that um, we're maybe get something from it. All right. Do you all have yeah. any last thoughts, anything, anything else you want to, you want to let the world know about your thoughts of, of mercy, beta lactam administration. We're not allowing any more Pittsburgh sports no. talk though, for the record. I just want to say when I started at UPMC, I used to cover medicine, like our general medicine cues on the weekends, including our MICU and our MICU pharmacist had this pilot for peripheral norepi. And it was, I just, I don't know why I was like, this is my weekend mission. It was like a way to like spice up my weekends. I was like rejecting all the central norepi and switching everyone to the peripheral bag and like participating in her QI study was really fun. So I'm glad we ended on that note. I love that. Yeah, I don't have anything to add. I fell asleep when you started talking about norepinephrine <laughs> administration strategies. So I, where am I? Oh, Thanks well, for having us, Nick. This was fun. Good yeah, discussion. Yeah, I appreciate you both uh, taking the time to join us, go through this stuff. And just another huge thanks to Jason Pogue and Aaron McCreary. That's at jpogue1, at Aaron McCreary. Um, thanks again. Uh, please... You know, they were asking for your thoughts. Let me know your thoughts as well at pharmacy to dose, TO to dose, uh, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, reach out via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. And of course, on the website as well, where you'll find the reference list, links to subscribe and download, all these types of things. Um, so until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com A-P-P-S. Podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.